Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. The official sponsor of the Can We Please Talk podcast is Fresh Roasted Coffee. Let's get you some great tasting coffee to help you start your day off right. Whether you're shopping for coffees, teas, syrups, mixes, mugs, gift cards, and more, when you get to checkout, enter in the promo code CANWEGET20 to get 20% off your first purchase of the delicious coffee that helps Nick and I get through these episodes. Head to our sponsors at FreshRoastedCoffee.com today. Hey, everybody. Welcome into an all-new episode of Can We Please Talk Podcast. As always, I'm Mike Leon. And I'm Nick Saberi. On the program today, the fireworks took place in our nation's capital this past week, Nick. And if you check the calendar, it's not July 4th. Nick and I, on the State of the Union speech, the president's message to the American people, some incredible theatrics of the night, as always, some key takeaways, and plus later on the program, to help us break it all down, PBS NewsHour White House correspondent Laura Barron Lopez. She's going to join us to tell us what is next for the Biden administration, the House GOP, and what they have set on their agenda and more. So, Laura, later on in the program, uh, before I say hello to Mr. Severi, uh, one thing I did want to mention, uh, two things I did want to mention. First, the housekeeping note, the Inner Puzzle, a new podcast coming to Leon Media Network this March. You're going to join host Paula Barron as each week she takes you inside the stories of real people who share their struggles, their battles, and they find strength and courage to get through it all. It's an amazing new podcast series you won't want to miss coming in March to LeonMediaNetwork.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Paula is part of the Leon Media Network family. We're so excited for her show coming out very soon uh, to transition as best as I can. If you have not seen the horrific images and what is happening in Turkey and Syria with the massive loss of life uh, after this uh, horrific earthquake, the 7.6 magnitude earthquake that hit Southern Turkey and parts of Northern Syria, there has been videos that we have been sharing on our social media handles. Um, some of this stuff is heartbreaking from the little uh, five-month-old girl, or I don't even know if she's five-month-old. She was born, excuse me, five months, at, at, at five months, due to all the trauma of her mother. Uh, and they cut the umbilical cord, rushed her to the hospital. All her family passed away in this horrific earthquake, yet somehow she survived. A miracle story. And then there's been other tragic stories that have been posted all around to continue to donate to the relief efforts that are undergoing over there. You can check out in our show notes, a link to UNICEF to donate to this. Uh, it is something that has really consumed me over the last couple of days, man. I catch myself watching some of this stuff from, from Al Jazeera's social media handles. And, you know, there's part of me that's like, I can't, I can't see that. I, I don't want to see that, you know, um, seeing a guy hold, a dad hold his 15-year-old daughter's hand, a dead hand as she's in the rubble is something I, I you know... I got two little girls at home. Nick, I know you got two daughters as well. Like that's seeing that kind of stuff is heartbreaking. It was a story of a guy who lost 25 family members in this earthquake. And he didn't live in the country anymore. He left 
Syria to move to another country with everything that's been happening with the war. Um, there's just been stories like that in abundance. And I feel for the people of Turkey and Syria that are going through this, whatever you can donate to the relief efforts that are going on there, head to our show notes, please click on the link or head to unicef.org and you can donate there. Um, I'm sorry that I transitioned to you like that, buddy, but it, it's just been watching this uh, play out and the toll continues to rise. We covered it on our last episode. And at that time it was, I mean, pretty big numbers. And now as of this taping, over 12,000 people have died in this. And again, the freezing cold temperatures, the relief efforts are still underway to try to find people. There's been people that have been found after 60 hours under the rubble and kids that have been found under and alive, you know, um, it's just heartbreaking all around, man. Uh, how, how are you doing other than all of that? Or what do you want to add to that? You know, all I can, all I can offer is, is what you just said a moment ago, you know, finding ways to, to support the efforts uh, from the rest of the world, organizations like UNICEF that are, that are stepping up. Um, you know, I think the only thing you can ever do in a moment like that, aside from, you know, providing what you can is, is to take inventory of how, how fortunate we all are. Um, you know, earthquakes are not foreign, you know, in this country, we've seen them certainly on the West coast. Uh, and we've certainly had different, you know, weather events, you know, throughout this country. And, you know, as tragedies like these take place, you, you simply have to step back. You hug your kids a little bit harder, just like you hug your spouse and you realize how fortunate you are. And, you know, this comes to me, especially at a time where, and we're going to obviously talk about the state of the union and the silly things that we argue about that, at least in this country can many, in many ways, keep us from being a, being a better place, um, being better to one another. You'd think a tragedy like that would give everyone pause to recognize the opportunity for togetherness and, and the need for it. Um, and even that though, you know, when we th- when we think of the speech, we think of this, the silliness that was going on, we're not there yet. And it's, and it's sad. Um, but right now we just think about, you know, what's going on in these places, um, families trying to be reunited, um, and families that never will be united again. And it's just, it's, it's a lot to take in. Yeah. You know, I have no follow-up that is really well said. And you're right. We're about to transition to our first segment of a political infighting that really is going to affect the 330 plus million Americans that live here and the nonsensical stuff that took place. You know, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene wearing a mink coat to this stupid speech, you know, like all of these things that really pale in comparison to what is happening over in Turkey and Syria. Again, our thoughts and prayers are with the folks over there. And like Nick said, you know, reevaluate the petty things that you're going through with family members, loved ones, because something like this, a natural disaster that's kind of out of our hands has impacted so many people over there, overseas. And um, things like that could happen here, man. We've seen tragedies that we've covered on this program that have happened here. So continue to donate to the relief efforts there. Uh, heartbreaking stuff over there. All right, I want to transition as best as we can. Uh, to the heartbreaking speech that we all listened to uh, this past week, the State of the Union given by President Biden this past week, talking about a bunch of different things from the debt ceiling 
And his words, Republicans plan to hold the economy hostage, Social Security, fentanyl and those affected by it, democracy being under attack, what police reform looks like to President Biden. And obviously, with the tragedy that happened here with Tyree Nichols and the Memphis Police Department, bunch of different people in attendance. Uh, Paul Pelosi, who is now on the mend after that attack that he suffered back at his San Francisco home in October. You had uh, Tyree Nichols' mom and stepfather were in attendance. And a bunch of things were playing out in the chambers from Mitt Romney arguing with George Santos prior to the speech, telling him you don't belong here. You should just sit in the back and shut up. I'm paraphrasing uh, as he said that to uh, reporters later on to Marjorie Taylor Greene interrupting President Biden a bunch and yelling and the meme of that cat from the Real Housewives uh, starting to take place over on social media. Let's play some highlights here uh, from the speech. Not going to play everything in its entirety, but some highlights from President Biden on a couple different topics. Take a listen to this. My administration has cut the deficit by more than $1.7 trillion. The largest deficit reduction in American history. Under the previous administration, the American deficit went up four years in a row. Because those record deficits, no president added more to the national debt in any four years than my predecessor. Nearly 25 percent of the entire national debt that took over 200 years to accumulate was added by just one administration alone, the last one. They're the facts. Check it out. How did Congress respond to that debt? They did the right thing. They lifted the debt ceiling three times without preconditions or crisis. They paid American bills to prevent an economic disaster in the country. Some of my Republican friends want to take the economy hostage. I get it, unless I agree to their economic plans. All of you at home should know what those plans are. Instead of making the wealthy pay their fair share, some Republicans, some Republicans want Medicare and Social Security to sunset. I'm not saying it's a majority. Let me give you anybody who doubts it. Contact my office. I'll give you a copy. I'll give you a copy of the proposal. Some of the theatrics of the night, you know, was part of that with with the yelling and the clapping. I I have to say one thing here before I want to play a couple other clips from the speech. But um, could we stop universally? Could we write something into law? to limit the amount of standing and applauding for things that are inaudible, that sometimes the president, you know, mishmashed his words and we didn't even know what it was. And next thing you know, everybody and their mother is standing and clapping for it. There's no need to stand for every single point of emphasis on this. It just makes this a longer event. I would love, and and the next member of Congress that we have on the program, we have one coming up soon in a month or so, I'm I'm going to stress this. Let's all clap at the beginning and give the president the proper acknowledgement. And then let's just sit down and be a normal audience and listen to this speech. And then we can go about our merry ways. Um, The president touched on a couple other things here, specifically with respect to fentanyl and the production of fentanyl, which got a rise out of the Republican caucus. Take a listen to this. Fentanyl is killing more than 70,000 Americans a year. You got it. Yeah. 
So let's launch a major surge to stop fentanyl production and the sale and trafficking with more drug detection machines, inspection cargo, stop pills and powder at the border. And also what happened last week with Balloon Gate and China. Take a listen to this. I'm committed to work with China where we can advance American interests and benefit the world. But make no mistake about it. As we made clear last week, if China threatens our sovereignty, we will act to protect our country. And we did. All right, Nick, uh, a bunch of different things there, debt ceiling. And, you know, you heard about the President Biden saying you want to contact my office and see the proposal. I have it here. A lot of people on social media saying you should show that proposal, President Biden, if you really, truly do. We've seen uh, the White House Twitter account attacking uh, uh, Senator Rick Scott about, you know, the proposed cuts to Social Security and Medicare, uh, which Republicans say is not coming. However, in other speeches that they've done on television or even Senator Mike Lee, who was recorded speaking to a bunch of donors one time, they've all mentioned trying to cut Social Security and Medicare at one point, whether or not that gets done. Who knows uh, the privatization of it? That's for another topic. What were some of your takeaways from the speech, some of the clips that we played there and the theatrics of the night overall. You know, it's fascinating. And I don't know how many people are doing this for their show, Um, but you and I took, you and I had very different experiences with the speech. I intentionally chose not to watch it. You know, I read the text of the speech. I read the transcript. So that's released from the White House. You know, so anyone here can be able to, to read it. As I did later on, see portions because you had shared some with me and I saw some on social media of where the president goes off script, you know, trying to, you know, <laughs> trying to connect with Republicans or point out, you know, where they are against things such as Social Security and Medicare. It was it was fascinating to see it became political theater. You know, I was taking notes as I as I saw some of those clips. And one of the things that first stood out to me is that. And maybe this is a little bit tied to what you observed about, you know, the the robotic standing and sitting and clapping and, you know, all the theatrics there is that we're we're kind of becoming English parliament. Like, I don't know if how many people the equivalent of C-SPAN in the UK, if you ever get a chance to watch it and you see, you know, how English parliament gets down, it's fascinating. You know, both sides sit across from one another. And one person speaks and, you know, the audience behind them rallies and they bang on tables and stuff. And the other side boos um, and then the other side speaks. And then it's, it, you know, back and forth and it's all performative. And sometimes the person who's speaking, as you noted with the State of the Union address, doesn't even get a chance to finish what they're saying. It's just everyone cuts in with whatever emotional outburst they want to share. And when that happens, we're not communicating at that point. You know, we're just being children um, or we're just being extremely immature. Actually, not even children, because my my oldest is knowledgeable enough to know not to interrupt someone when they're talking and vice versa when it matters to her. So I, English Parliament is the first thing that came to mind. You know, one of the things that stood out to me, there's so many. I mean, full disclosure, folks, I pulled the transcript of the show down. Mike and I were looking at it this morning and highlighting portions to talk about tonight. And there's so many places we can go. But one thing stood out to me early on is the word is the use of the word pride. You know, President Biden evokes a very interesting image of of America. Interesting in the sense it's reminiscent of someone. And I'm going to get to that person in a minute. The word pride was used a few times. 
it was in reference to the sense of pride of having a good paying job. Uh, it was in reference to the pride of being an American or, you know, what America America is capable of doing in the sense of pride there. And the person that came to me as he was speaking in this way was Ronald Reagan. And it's interesting because this seems to be this seems to be an ongoing thing about Joe Biden. He's talked for a while about the battle of the soul of this nation. He may have even used that phrase in 2017 when he gave that speech, which really became his first campaign speech, if we're being honest with ourselves about Charlottesville. And it just really stood out to me that this is a point he's trying to drive home. And it's a point that old school Democrats get down with in that, you know, the recognition of a country that that is great, that we should be proud of. And it's fascinating because we have our most political politically opposed folks in this country that both think this country isn't great because the other side is causing it. Um, you know, the, the part about senior citizens, you know, and taking care of seniors, which by the way, the note I wrote to myself there is, gee, I hope we can take that same attitude with young people, you know, coming out of college. You know, we have a bunch of senior citizens and I'm not trying to slander people. That's true. There are a lot of folks over the age of 65 that serve in Congress that, you know, talk often about taking care, taking care of senior citizens and making sure, you know, Medicare is still in place. And I'm just thinking, and the best we did for younger people is $10,000 for the student loans. Great, but still a lot to go to anyway. But when that comment came up about taking care of seniors and the president talked about, well, you know, look at their plan. What he's referencing is, as you said before, what Mike Lee has said, what Rick Scott has talked about. Uh, there was a uh, recent, actually, I think even today, the you know, president was giving a speech in Wisconsin talking about Senator Ron Johnson, who narrowly won his race against Mandela Barnes for the Wisconsin Senate seat. And he mentioned, you know, in that brochure from Senator Johnson is the conversation or the idea of sunsetting or evaluating Medicare and Social Security every five years. And what Biden and Democrats have smartly now done is bring this up constantly that Republicans are putting this on the table. So when the president brings this up last night and then everyone is starting to yell like this isn't true and I'm not playing politics here, but it is. I mean, there's documentation that says this is part of it. So it was interesting because it felt like a campaign speech. Um, you know, when you read the text of it, you get the sense of a lot of accomplishments from this president. You know, many bill, many bipartisan bills passed by this president. He was very, he was excited to share that. And I think that is, that's very telling. Um, but it was very theatrical. That was a word I took away. I will say the education head that I am, I did notice that there was only one small fraction dedicated to the education conversation, which was fascinating to me because we're in a place now where when we talk about education, which is always a loaded concept to get into in America. But right now, it's especially charged. I mean, you and I have spent many episodes deconstructing why critical race theory is not ta talked in school. What is behind all these buzzwords, anti-woke, woke, all this stuff that we're seeing from you know Governor Ron DeSantis. And you know, librarians are under attack. Like there's so many. I mean, the president's wife is an educator. And all that the president said was in reference to three and four-year-olds having access to universal pre-K, which currently in New York City, I believe, still is in place. And the idea that at a federal level, all states have access. Um, and it just stood out to me because education is certainly under attack in this country. And it would have helped to have a little bit more of a sense from where this president stands. Uh, where is the Department of Ed in all this, right? 
Um, but nothing there. But the bigger themes about jobs, infrastructure, you know, the reference to police brutality, which I thought which was important to do. And, you know, the, the victims of Tyree Nichols's family was there. Someone had made reference to this, I forget who said, but it was so appropriate about the fact that, you know, it is it is really disheartening to see members of Congress getting up and applauding when you can't even pass the George Floyd Act. Right. And so many people that are standing up and applauding are the same people that constantly say, you know, we shouldn't criticize police at all. You know, and these isolated incidents, these bad apples, you know, these people who are being murdered by the by the police are simply resisting arrest. Um, that was that was just strange. But yeah, a lot. Those were my initial. Those are the primary takeaways I, I got from um, last night. Yeah, there was a lot in the speech. I mean, again, I was I was watching on and off and then. You know, because it went on for so long. I think the president started the speech around nine ten. You know, obviously they come into the chambers, everybody's clapping and stuff like that. By the time he gets to his speech and he's thanking people and then, you know, uh, giving out his flowers to Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi and and to Mitch McConnell, too, as well. Um, a bunch of different takeaways. Like I said, there, there's a lot in there if you're you know want to learn more about, you know, the debt ceiling battle and what this means. Laura's going to explain a little bit more of that. In the um, in the next segment, uh, Nick, you were talking about the transcript. I mean, that transcript was 25 pages. I mean, I, I'm not reading through 25 pages. Very interesting. But here's one big thing that I took away. I'm so glad that you mentioned about the police reform stuff there, because that was one point where I had just tuned back in to start watching. And President Biden was talking about the talk. If you don't know what the talk is, first, let's listen to the president. And then I want to give you a little bit of my own personal experiences on the talk. Take a listen to this. Most of us in here have never had to have the talk, the talk that brown and black parents have had to have with their children. Bo, Hunter, Ashley, my children, I never had to have the talk with them. I never had to tell them if a police officer pulls you over, turn your interior lights on right away. Don't reach for your license. Keep your hands on the steering wheel. Imagine having to worry like that every single time. The Public Policy Institute of California did a survey a while back about racial disparities within the criminal justice system, excuse me, racial disparities in law enforcement stops, specifically in California. It analyzed data for about 4 million stops. You can check this out at ppic.org and take a look at what the findings found from California's 15 largest law enforcement agencies. This was uh, conducted a few years ago. And it revealed in with respect to black and white Californians in particular and traffic uh, enforced law enforcement stops that black Californians are more than twice as likely to be searched as white Californians, about 20% to 8%. Again, this is out of 4 million conducted traffic stops by the 15 largest law enforcement agencies in California. The searches of black civilians are somewhat less likely to yield contraband and evidence than searches of white civilians. Uh, black people are overrepresented in the stops, not leading to enforcement, defined as an officer declining to issue even a warning, as well as in stops leading to an arrest. Black individuals were twice as likely to be booked into jail as the white individuals. Uh, these are just some of the findings from this report. And again, this is just analyzing one state, 15 uh, you know, different law enforcement agencies within one of our biggest states in the union. The reason I wanted to bring it up 
was as I was researching this topic and I heard the president talk about this, um, it made me think about when I got my license and when my father had to talk with me. Um, it's something I still remember to this day, and it's something that I still do in practice. I do it to a little lesser extent in Florida because, uh, one, I have not been pulled over in the parts of Florida that I live in where a lot more people look and sound like me. The population down here in Florida is largely, especially in Miami, and Miami-Dade County is largely Hispanic. A lot of the officer makeups are Hispanic. Uh, so I have yet to be, you know, watch me get pulled over after this segment, but I have yet to be pulled over, at least in Miami-Dade, and deal with a law enforcement stop down here. I've been pulled over by state troopers heading back north in different southern states. And you and I have talked about this before. I got pulled over uh, going 71 in a 70 one time. And, you know, three squad cars later and my wife passed out in the passenger side. Uh, they thought that I kidnapped her. That's a real thing. Like that legitimately happened to us. And luckily without incident, um, I'm still talking to you today. But the first thing I did in that traffic stop and the conversation that my father had with me and President Biden kind of elaborated on it a little bit, but he didn't actually articulate it the way it was presented to me when we had the talk. Turn the car off, put the keys on top of the dashboard, make sure your license and registration are already out on top of the dashboard, put your hands at 10 and two. So that way your hands are out. You don't have to reach into the glove compartment to reach in for anything. And the keys are out of the vehicle as well. So it doesn't look like you're trying to do anything. There's no weapons or anything like that. And oh, oh, obviously I should mention, make sure you don't have anything on you, right? Like you shouldn't be driving around with any of that stuff anyway. Uh, as Ellie Honig said in our last episode, criminals are going to crime, right? I can't stop him from criming as he made up a new uh, verb there. But um, I, I laugh in jest, but when I lived in a largely black and brown community in New York, growing up in the Bronx, before I moved to Westchester County, which was 90% white in the town that I lived in, I, I, I never got stopped by law enforcement down in the areas in the Bronx where I lived in. Now, again, I'm younger, I'm not driving, you know, I'm not doing the certain things that, you know, uh, would be equivalent to uh, crimes, right? Uh, but when I moved up to the white neighborhood and once I got my license, I was pulled over a bunch of different times. And I was even asked to get out of a vehicle when I wasn't driving one time and nobody else in the vehicle was asked to get out of that vehicle. Um, I, I'm, I'm, if you can hear it in my voice a little bit, I have a, a little bit of a, a wry smile with respect to this, but these are things that happen in certain communities uh, that are not talked about because, you know, I haven't been thrown to the ground and, you know, uh, harassed by police and arrested or, you know, beaten or anything like that. Nothing has escalated to that point. Now, Mike, uh, what's different between you and other cases? I don't know. Maybe it's, you know, the charming wit that I have. I, I don't know. I really don't know. But I will tell you that what that survey, uh, that study found and what President Biden said yesterday uh, or two days ago in the speech really resonated with me because it's something that directly happened to my family as, as the son of an Afro-Cuban man. And my father is way darker than me. These are things that were passed down to him. And understanding that how you enact with law enforcement, um, you can do some preventative steps to maybe help. But like the other police officers and law enforcement folks that we've had on the program have said before to us, you really don't know how people are on that day when you catch them, right? And so the big thing that 
that police officer said to us that's been on the program, uh, Officer Benson down there in Prince George County, Maryland, is that you have to understand as a law enforcement official, you're going to see that person on their worst day. Like they're calling you for help. And that is my big takeaway. Uh, we need to do a better job with police reform with respect to the humanity part of this. But we also can't belittle the experiences of people that have gone through things like this. And that talk is something that I hope eventually goes away in this world, but I don't think it is. And I know that I'm probably not going to have to have that talk with my daughters because uh, they're more fair skinned. Just being honest, they're more fair skinned than what their father is. And it really resonated with me because when we talked about the Tyree Nichols incident, you said it on the episode, um, the calmest voice on that was Tyree Nichols. And that's the problem that we're having, in addition to other problems with law enforcement agencies. But that was the biggest problem that you could hear on that video. Tyree being the calmest person. You guys are doing too much right now. I am on the ground. I'm literally on the ground. And he is the calmest voice in that. And he should still be here today. But we have issues like this that keep popping up because nobody, specifically like you just said, in that chamber wants to pass reforms that at a federal level will at least do some things to maybe prevent this next one from happening. Um, that was my biggest takeaway in the speech uh, as, as, again, a bunch of different things were talked about. And in the next segment, Laura is going to break down a bunch of the stuff that you may have not caught from the speech. In addition to the debt ceiling argument, she does a fantastic job breaking that down. But for me, that resonated the most because it is something that I have carried through my life with respect to dealing with law enforcement. And I hope that we can, as a country, like we said at the beginning of this segment, we talked about what's happening in Turkey and Syria. If we can just realize and humanize people and realize our interactions with each other matter, they truly matter because at a time like this, where everyone is so polarized, we have to come together on certain things. What happened with Tyree Nichols is terrible. We've got to prevent that next one from happening. We leave it there. Uh, when we come back after the break, PBS White House correspondent Laura Barron Lopez, she's going to be joining us. She does really a great job of covering all of this and what she's hearing in D.C. from how the Biden administration viewed the speech to what's next. Like what's next on the agenda for the House GOP and how do Speaker McCarthy and President Biden work together to enact legislation for the American people? Laura, when we come back after the break. 
Your website should be a marketing asset, not an engineering challenge. Empowering everyone from independent designers to whole marketing teams, Webflow combines the power of HTML, CSS, and JavaScript and places them all in a completely visual canvas. Trusted by companies like Lattice and Discord, it changes the way marketers, designers, and engineers create for the web. Now you can build the site you want without the dev time. Start building for free at webflow.com. Nick, today's episode is presented as always by our friends over at Fresh Roasted Coffee. Since 2009, their passion has always been bringing you gourmet coffees from all over the world, roasted fresh to order. I got my coffee snob here, Nick Saveri. Nick, tell these people, coffee snob it up here. Tell these people why Fresh Roasted Coffee is so good and why they're the official sponsor of Can We Please Talk? You know, often the best cup of coffee that you're ever going to have is the one you can make, you can make from home. And you need good quality coffee to do that. And that's what Fresh Roasted Coffee offers. You know, between single origin, between blends, flavors, anything on the coffee spectrum they've got. But more importantly, and I can't stress this enough, often when you purchase coffee, you don't know where to start. I mean, there's so many different varieties, so many different opportunities, so many different things you could choose from. And Fresh Roasted Coffee just gives you a very simple questionnaire and just says, hey, figure out what your cup, what your coffee cup is. Figure out what blend works for you. I've gotten some single origin recommendations, so is Mike, and that's influenced everything. And what they recommend, you can get in a Keurig cup, the way Mike takes it. You can take it in the way I do it, which is typically through a French press, or you can get it for a percolator. Whatever coffee machine you've got, they've got you covered. But more importantly, just a huge variety and a way to learn more about coffee itself. No, that's very well said. And all of this is available at freshroastedcoffee.com on their site. One cup is all it takes to fall in love with fresh roasted coffee, but you get a discount for being a listener of Can We Please Talk. All you got to do is enter in the promo code Can We Get 20 at checkout to get 20% off your first purchase. Head to freshroastedcoffee.com today. This episode is brought to you by KitCaster. KitCaster books you on top podcasts. How do funded startup founders attract prospects and talent? Podcast interviews. How do entrepreneurs with exits find new deals? Podcast interviews. How do C-suite execs differentiate in crowded markets? Podcast interviews. KitCaster books you on top podcasts. Click the link in the show notes for a special offer. Celebrate good conversation. All right. She's a fantastic White House correspondent over at PBS NewsHour. One of my favorite people to watch on the media circles, and that's Laura Baron Lopez. Laura, Mike Leon, Nick Saveri, thank you so much for hopping on the podcast with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Laura, you know, I, I was telling you this off air. We were talking about why we wanted to have you on. Nobody better to cover the White House and what we just saw this past week in the State of the Union. We were talking about the speech overall in our first segment, but I want to get impressions from you because the president hit on a bunch of different things from the debt ceiling battle, police reform, fentanyl production, a bunch of different items. What are you hearing in terms of how the administration is viewing this speech? Was it successful or not successful? And how did the president perform, at least, you know, to the people out there in D.C. and the administration's eyes? Yeah. Inside the administration, I mean, his staff, the senior aides, they could not be more excited about how the speech went. I was texting with a senior White House official on the day after the speech, and 
They told me that they were pumped, that they felt as though Republicans essentially walked into a trap, specifically on that debt ceiling interaction that you just mentioned, because they said that, you know, the president went in essentially kind of expecting some of those Republicans to to heckle him and to go after him and potentially boo him. And in that specific instance, this White House official told me that that booing allowed the president to then say, "Okay, so we agree. We agree that there should be no cuts to Social Security or to Medicare. And uh, in front of the biggest audience that the president probably will get all year, uh, will get all year. You know, there's more than about 30 million or so people that tuned into his 2022 State of the Union speech. And so it's the biggest audience that he's going to have. And he essentially kind of negotiated right there on the floor with Republicans. And he even said that in a in an interview the day a day later with our news hours, Judy Woodruff, where he said that he was expecting Republicans to do that. And he clearly enjoyed the back and forth. So that was one thing that stood out. Um, another thing that stood out to me uh, and to a number of Democrats that I was talking to right after the speech, particularly uh, members of the Congressional Black Caucus, was that he decided to explain to the entire country what the talk is. The talk is that black and brown families have to have with their kids, that these parents have to have with their kids when they interact with police. And having covered President Biden you know, since he was vice president, but in particular, very closely throughout the 2020 Democratic primary, it was striking to hear the fact to hear him actually explain what the talk is and also say that as a as a white father, he never had to have had to have that conversation with his kids, with his white kids. And so the reason it was so striking to me was that during the 2022 sorry, excuse me, during the 2020 Democratic presidential primary, Biden at the time was getting attacked from fellow Democratic candidates because he had been going around saying that he used to work really well with segregationists uh, in the Senate and also because he was the author of the crime bill. So that that really felt like, I guess, you know, just this huge progress to hear him come from that to, to explaining what the talk is and really give some time to police brutality in his speech. Laura, how does this speech compare to you from 2022 or even just, you know, other state of the unions in general? Um, obviously we noted it's interesting. So I read the transcript of the speech and I did that intentionally just to, you know, just see from a language standpoint and Mike watched it and listened to obviously, you know, from your stance though, how did that speech compare just from its intention to the engagement with Republicans um, just, you know, Biden on the microphone, what was your, what was your read of, of the speech's purpose? And do you feel like it landed on its mark? I think that the president and the white house officials definitely think that it did what they meant for it to do going in and Compared to 2022, we have to remember that 2022, he gave that State of the Union speech that addressed to Congress right after Russia invaded Ukraine. And so a huge portion of that speech was, especially at the top of it, was dedicated to that, to, to his decision to defend Ukraine, for U.S. to, to really try to unite NATO in defense of Ukraine, in defense of democracies. And he still talked about that 
during this speech, but it was much lower down in the speech, whereas in 2022, it was higher up. He still talked about defending democracies and that an attack on a democracy abroad is an attack on all democracies. Uh, but this speech was much more about, especially the top portion as well as like the middle chunk of it, was all about what he had accomplished during the first two years of his presidency and now what Americans were going to see from that because a lot of it is being implemented just now. So you see he's going around the country, whether it's to um, Baltimore and New York last week, this week he was in Wisconsin today in Florida. And a lot of that is around the money that is being doled out from the infrastructure bill, the bipartisan infrastructure law, and the millions that are being spent across the, the billions, excuse me, that are being spent across the country to improve infrastructure, to start new projects, to build new tunnels, to replace lead pipes. And that was a core part of his speech because one, it was trying to explain to the American public, look, all of these things are going to, all of these projects are going to be starting now, which means all of these jobs are going to be um, opening up at manufacturing jobs and that they don't necessarily require a college degree. That is a huge part of his argument right now as he's going across the country because he is trying to win back white working class voters. You know, Democrats have a solid base of black voters, Latino voters, working class all the way up to, you know, wealthy across those two demographics. But white working class voters in particular have moved away from Democrats and towards Republicans in the last few election cycles. And so you've seen that with that argument, he's trying to win some of those back by saying this is not going to require a college degree. Um, so that was a huge portion of his speech. Another part of his speech was clearly trying to um, be empathetic with the American public by saying one, he thinks, you know, his argument and his administration's argument is that the economy is resilient and that it's strong and that unemployment is low. You know, some 12 million jobs were created since 2021 under his watch, but that he understands that the cost of living is still high and that consumer goods are still high. And so one thing in particular about his speech that stood out to me was how much time he spent on junk fees. You know, what what he calls and what actually a lot of other Democrats like Senator Elizabeth Warren have called junk fees. In, in that, he's talking about overdraft bank fees, um, resort fees for hotels that he said aren't exactly resorts. He also had this line that seemed to get a lot of reaction in the chamber um, about airlines, you know, treating your children like baggage. So trying to tell the public that he understands things are expensive and he is you know, proposing bills that he hopes Congress then takes up to make things less expensive. Laura, you know, we can't get past the person over the president's uh, right shoulder for people watching on TV and Kevin McCarthy and some of the head nods in either direction, a few claps here and there. I hate when everybody stands, but we could get into that for another podcast. But obviously much was made of the previous week's meeting between Speaker McCarthy and President Biden. What's next on the conversation uh, list for these two gentlemen and specifically the agenda that Speaker McCarthy has kind of laid out for the GOP conference? Like, what do you expect over these next couple of weeks with respect to the administration and President Biden, Speaker McCarthy meeting again? And then where are we with some of the stuff that the president talked about in the speech getting done? 
So specifically on the debt ceiling, which as we know, the Treasury Department is now taking extraordinary measures to try to make sure that the country doesn't default on its debt. And around late spring or so, we're not quite sure when the country is going to re it reach its debt ceiling. To explain what that means is that when the country defaults on its debt, um, it's catastrophic, essentially. We have never gone over the cliff. Uh, and if we were to go over the cliff, uh, it, it would be actually catastrophic, catastrophic for everyday people, meaning that benefits would be cut, uh, checks wouldn't go out to veterans, uh, interest rates would go up, all kinds of things like that. And so since that meeting that you just mentioned, Mike, about between Speaker McCarthy and President Biden, they, they left that meeting saying that they think that they can come to an agreement. So that way the debt ceiling is lifted and the country doesn't default on its debt. Now, there's a lot of time, though, for things to go wrong, because, again, it's not going to happen until late spring, early summer. Around March, we're expecting to see the president release his budget and the White House is expecting to then see Republicans release theirs. And that is all a part of this deal making. The White House's public position is that they're not going to negotiate around the debt ceiling. They want the debt ceiling to be lifted on its own. And then separately, they might be willing to negotiate about spending cuts and whatnot with Republicans, depending on, on what Republicans pr propose. But again, they are asking Republicans to release exactly what they think they want to cut. And so far, um, despite really pushing the fact that they think there needs to be spending cuts in order to rein in the country's debt, Republicans have not issued specifics on that. So around March, we're expecting to see more specifics. There, of course, will be more meetings. In terms of their relationship, President Biden said it during his speech. He said it a lot around the speech that he considers Speaker McCarthy to be a decent man, that he thinks that they can work together. McCarthy also seems to be reciprocating that. Um, but you also mentioned in terms of just the overall agenda for the House GOP. It's very different than what we're seeing from the agenda from the Senate GOP. Uh, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, of course, has had a much longer relationship with President Biden than Speaker McCarthy. And they have passed bills together. That bipartisan infrastructure law I just mentioned, that was something McConnell, Senator McConnell voted for. Speaker McCarthy, who wasn't speaker yet at the time, did not vote for that. The same with the semiconductor bill that was passed, um, which you know is supposed to improve manufacturing of semiconductor chips, which are in vehicles, smartphones. Um, McConnell voted for that. I'm pretty positive. McCarthy, I know, did not vote for that bill. So when it comes to what they can potentially work on together, a lot of Democrats I talked to after the speech said they don't expect any major pieces of the legislation to pass in the next two years because of that divided government, because Republicans control the House. So any big thing on policing reform, they don't expect it. Any big compromise on immigration reform, they don't think it's going to happen. Republicans are very focused right now, and we've seen, especially this week with their investigations launching, they're focused on political investigations, essentially, of President Biden and his administration. And while the chairman say that they want their investigations to be taken very seriously, there is, you know, a lot of hypocrisy around the investigations. Chairman James Comer of the Oversight Committee um, is saying that he wants, is requesting documents 
from the DOJ relating to the classified documents that President Biden had, as well as that former Vice President Pence had, but is not requesting any type of visitor logs or material around the classified documents related to President Trump. Um, so right now, the House GOP focuses very much on those investigations, whether it's into Biden administration cabinet officials, into the president himself, into his family, uh, and not so much right now on trying to pass any type of bipartisan legislation. Laura, you, yeah, that was <laughs> you walked into my question there because <laughs> you're looking at Governor Sanders of Arkansas's response um, and in general what we've seen in terms of the messaging from the especially the House GOP. What seems to be from a policy standpoint, because when we saw Governor Sanders response and it's I'm rolling my eyes for anyone who's just only listening to this um, again about left leaning ideology, critical race theory, all these things. But from your stance in terms of a policy based response, obviously, the president is inviting one. But from what you're seeing in terms of the Republican messaging coming out of the State of the Union, does there seem to be any level of focus or any clarity on what the Republican policy vision is? It's difficult to answer that question, but I know that the initial policy response from House Republicans in particular has been they they did pass some bills around abortion, of course, bills that are never going to be passed by the, the Senate Democratic majority and would never be signed by President Biden. Uh, they passed a bill that would allow for prosecution of doctors who perform the procedure, the abortion procedure. I expect we are going to see more abortion-related, anti-abortion bills coming out of the House GOP. That's one front. You're going to see a lot of messaging around the border and a lot of bills passed that are potentially just focused on border security. But what's interesting there is that there isn't... Um, there may not necessarily even be enough votes within the House GOP because the majority is so slim. So they essentially need every House Republican to vote for the bills that they want to see passed because Democrats, uh, the, the Democratic caucus is overwhelmingly going to vote against the majority of the bills that they put on the floor. And so right now, the immigration bills that they are potentially proposing from a, a lot of Texas Republicans not all of the Republicans and not all the Texas Republicans even agree on those immigration bills, which is why you haven't really seen them come to the floor. Um, and I think we're going to see that more and more with House Republicans. It's also what makes the situation around the debt ceiling, according to economists, whether it's the U.S. Chamber, and I've spoken to the U.S. Chamber, which leans more conservative, AEI, the American Enterprise Institute, which leans conservative as a conservative think tank, or you talk to Democratic-leaning economists, they're all really worried about the debt ceiling because of the fact that even if Speaker McCarthy agrees to a clean debt ceiling increase, there are probably five or more House Republicans, and that's all it takes, who do not want to vote for that. And they could just decide to present a motion to vacate the chair. I know that sounds really wonky, but vacate the chair essentially means that they just put a motion forward to kick McCarthy out of the speakership. And um, that could happen at any moment if they're not happy with the bills that he puts on the floor. And it would only take like five of them. I, I'm laughing. That is so wild. But we all knew all this already. Uh, Laura, before we let you go, I did want to ask you, uh, we've had over the last couple of weeks, uh, Ellie Honig from, from CNN, uh, former DOJ prosecutor. We've had Pete Lapp, a former FBI agent. We've been talking about all the classified document investigations. 
I'm curious, though, from what you're hearing in D.C., you just mentioned about Representative Comer from Kentucky there and, and the investigations into the Biden family themselves. But where do we expect when we'll actually hear some news from the special counsels with respect to President Trump's investigation, President Biden's investigation? Like, where do you see some of this shaking out over the calendar year? Yeah, I I honestly I don't think anyone knows. Even the legal the 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 lawyers that I've talked to say it really is up to the special counsel how long these investigations are going to take or how quickly they are going to move. In the case of the special counsel Jack Smith who's the one that is overseeing the investigation into President Trump, there are multiple things that he's looking at. He is not just investigating the classified documents that Trump had. He's also investigating um, what Trump did to potentially overturn the 2020 election. So he has multiple things that he is looking at, that special counsel. Then special counsel Robert Hur, who's looking into President Biden's classified document situation. Some legal experts that I've spoken to said that they think that will be a faster investigation simply because of the investigations differ um, at the point that the documents were discovered. So President Trump's documents, he was notified by archives, by National Archives, you have all these classified documents, we need them back. And basically from that point for more than a year, President Trump and his team obstructed. They, they did not give those documents back. They did not cooperate, which is what ultimately led to the FBI search of his, of Mar-a-Lago. The difference in President Biden, in President Biden's case, is that his staffers, his aides, found the documents. His private attorney um, then reached out to archives and said, "We have these documents. We want you to take them off our hands immediately." And from that point on, was cooperating with National Archives, was cooperating with DOJ. The steady trickle of the documents, of course, does not look good for the president. The Also, the lack of transparency here and there with the public, although legally he doesn't have to disclose any of this information, but there was a lot of lack of transparency uh, from President Biden. Either way, though, because of the fact that he was so cooperative and his team was so cooperative from the beginning, he's not being looked into right now for obstruction the way Trump is. So the cases are very different. The same with Mike Pence's case because of the level of cooperation. And so far, there doesn't appear to be any type of special counsel that is going to be appointed to look into Mike Pence's classified documents case. But honestly, I don't think anyone knows when these are going to wrap up, how long they're going to go on for. Of course, the politics of it all is not supposed to influence the special counsels. Ultimately, the final decision does rest with Merrick Garland once the each of the special counsels make their recommendations on whether or not to charge uh, President Biden or President Trump. And then Merrick Garland, the attorney general, has to make the ultimate decision. And every lawyer I've talked to or former DOJ prosecutor says there is going to be some politics that factors in. You can't look at all these cases in a vacuum. Yep. We were hearing the same stuff as well, too. Uh, you could check out all of Laura's work over at pbs.org backslash news hour or catch her at PBS news hour. Check your local listings for time and station. And also she's a contributor across, I believe, CNN and maybe some other networks. But I always, see her. I always <laughs> see her on CNN. You should be on other networks as well. She's a fantastic White House correspondent. Laura, I can't thank you enough for coming on the program. Continue success to you and please stay safe. Thanks so much. 
All right. Our thank yous there to Laura Barron Lopez. Like I mentioned, PBS NewsHour, White House correspondent. Check her out uh, wherever you watch PBS. Uh, you uh, you stream it. You go to pbs.org. Sometimes I go to pbs.org backslash NewsHour. Truly. And I watch the NewsHour program. We've had Amna Nawaz on from over there. Uh, they do a great job over there. And for the people that are rolling their eyes, because I rolled my R's when I say Barron, that's the way you say it. Sorry about that. Nick, quick takeaways on Laura as we wrap here, as you hear the music sending us off and, and the State of the Union overall. Yeah, I, I can't roll my art. Uh, I'll leave that one to you. Um, I, she, she was great. You know, it's, it's interesting, just her takeaways and her observations from the State of the Union. She was definitely giving the impression that just it was a interesting mix of campaigning along with um, just where we are as a country. But that point she brings up of the trap that Biden may have set for Republicans that night that they just weren't prepared for in terms of messaging and their response, which is weird for that party, is very telling. Uh, I, the sense I got is Biden's a little more savvier than I think many people are giving him credit for. Yeah, she was great. Uh, check out all her work. Like I mentioned, for us, you want to check out our work, video, YouTube, hit the subscribe button over at Can We Please Talk if you Type that into the search bar, audio podcast platforms. You know them by now. Apple, Spotify, Google. Shout out to all the good folks over at Good Pods that listen. Shout out to ACAST, our hosting platform. We can't do it without them. We can't do it without each and every one of you that listens into this program each week. As always, I am Mike Leon. And I'm Nick Saveri. We'll see everybody next time.